We're going to begin in Genesis 50, 5 0, 50, if you want to open up your Bible. And then somewhere along the way, we'll jump all the way to the New Testament to Acts chapter 6. So I'll let you find that. Um, I don't know if you guys remember this. We're, we're currently in PNG country. And so, uh, the PNG Indians, we went to the playoffs this last season. That, that was, that was really fun. I, I don't know if you made any of the games. My, my family and I, we made a couple of the games. We, we went to the one in Houston, which, uh, for some reason I think was around Katy. Uh, that was awesome. Awesome. Uh, in, in part because it was a great game. It was a lot of fun. We see all of Port Natchez show up like two hours away and uh, we win the game, right? And so it's always fun when you win the game. And so because we won that game, the next game, the next playoff game was like semi-state or I don't know what it was, but but uh, we're in the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. Now, Ashley and I, we're from Mid-County, but we lived in DFW for several years, six or seven years. So when we think a chance to go to DFW, we're going to take that, you know what I mean? And so we pack up the kids. We're saying, hey, we're going to stay at an Airbnb because we know a thing or two about DFW. We know the people. We know the food. We know the restaurants. I lost my high school figure eating at all the delicious places in Houston. In, in DFW, uh, it's just a great place to be. And so, yes, we get to cheer on our local team, and yes, we get to have some fun. And so we go. We go to the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. I'd never been in the stadium. And it was really cool, by the way, to see just a sea of purple filling up the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. There's like a really like cult-like moment where everybody's, you know, singing the Cherokee War song, which I don't know when they teach the kids in Port Natchez this, but I think it's around age eight months old. They know the Cherokee War song. Uh, there's a moment where like we're doing like the Axe thing, we're doing like this, and and it's just like there's there's the the war song playing, and and it it was like a fan of wind just going through the whole stadium. It was great. It was a well played game. Uh, the the be, both teams brought the best. We ended up losing that game, unfortunately, but uh, not not because we didn't play well. And so the game is over. the the main The excuse for going, the main reason for going, is now over. But we tell our kids, Luke and Max, our two sons, we're like, hey, we're staying an extra day because. Because this is DFW, man, and we're going to have some fun. And like, yes, we're going to have fun. What are we going to do? It's like, we don't know. It's a surprise, okay? It's a surprise. We're not telling you. And so the next day we get up and we're like, hey, it's time to go. We're going to leave our Airbnb. It's time to check out. And we're going to go this way. And what are we going to do, Dad? It's like, oh, just wait and see. Now, what they don't know is that mom and dad actually literally had no plan on what to do. We knew DFW well enough that we could meander around the area without really having a plan. And we just knew we would find something to do. We would find something great. But we didn't tell them. And so we did the old people thing of like, hey, this is where we used to live. And we go like this. There used to be a house here. And it was great. And then we would drive by like, this is where we went to college. And these were the dorms. And the kids were like, and then? And it's like, no, listen, listen. This is this used to be uh, a checkers. And now it's something else. It's like, yeah, right. But where's the fun stuff? And so mom and dad just love the meandering. Because we didn't really know where we were going to go and make our way. The kids were becoming more and more anxious as we were meandering. I don't know if you've been this place with your kids. But at some point, they became convinced mom and dad have no idea what you're doing. You, you don't know where we're going. We're not going to do anything fun. And you could almost hear like the switch gears of like, you're not taking us anywhere fun. Ah, you know, and this isn't going to work out. And so we knew, uh, Ashley and I, we knew of this spot. It was like an outdoor mall area that when we were leaving DFW, it was, it was booming. It was starting to come up and we just sort of suspected it's probably developed some more, but we have no idea what's over there. And so we made our way over there and we found this awesome, like I'm telling you, 
telling you guys, it was a rock climbing gym, but it was really cool. The, 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 we look in the windows and it had, it was like American Ninja Warrior, uh, training course or something like that. We're talking like adults who can just, you know, like Spider-Man from wall to wall. And you look through the windows and it's just, it's super dangerous looking, but I'm sitting back and I'm thinking I can, I can probably do that. Ashley's seen me in boots like this before. She's like, you definitely can't do that. Don't try. Uh, and so we, we walk in next door to the adult American Ninja Warrior training facilities is this family-friendly American Ninja Warrior training facility that you walk in, you pay a fee to get in, they hook your kids up to a harness, and then all of the obstacles are developed in such a way that you had to have the harness to climb. It is impossible to get yourself into an unsafe situation because the, the, the thing wouldn't open unless you put the harness in, which as a parent of Luke and Max, if you've ever met Luke and Max, you're like, that sounds pretty great, you know? And so we put a harness on Max and we're just like, go for it, kid. Like, what are you going to do? And so he's like, we're at one point, uh, Ashley and I were sipping coffee and we look like, where's Max? He's like, he's 20 feet up on the wall, ringing a bell. And then he comes flying down. They had this moment where these, these blocks, these big foam blocks, like two feet by two feet, you build a tower and you can get as high as you can go. You can get, you know, at least 15 feet high in this room. And then if someone just knocks the tower out from under, you just free fall back to the bottom. And so here's Max. He's like jumping and building a tower and he gets to the top. And, and then at some point he kind of like, hey, dad, watch this. And he kicks the tower out from under himself and he falls uh, in super slow motion. My kids had a blast. Here's, here's the point. Um, we promised our kids it's going to be okay. We promised our kids we're going to have a good time. And at some point along, they believed me at first. And then at some point they're like, dad, you're making this up. You're not going to. And if you ask them right now, what was the best thing about that trip? It wasn't even going into the Dallas Cowboy Stadium, which was ridiculously fun. It was this random thing that we found off to the side. Jesse, that's a long story. What's the point? Here, here's the point. Too often in the Christian walk, we get to this place with the Father where we're like, yeah, I trust you, Father, where, wherever you're going to take me. And then as we're meandering along, things happen, different things come up. And on the sight, the, the, the sightseeing tour, um, we get in our hearts the space where it's like, Dad, Father, are you, do you really know what you're doing? Do you really know where you're taking me? Do you, are you able to see this through all the way to the end? Um, and just the overwhelming testimony of Scripture and the overwhelming testimony of the men and women who go to church here who have a history of following Jesus say the same thing. He knows what he's doing, and he gets to the places that he wants us to be. Much better than Ashley and I do, uh, he, he does. And so we've been in this book of uh, Genesis looking at Joseph. We're wanting to see as a, as a character, as a, as a man of God, God, what, uh, what it was like. And he, um, he is a man who has all of these ups and downs. And yet we come to the same conclusion is that God sees his purposes, his plans through to completion. I'm going to dehydrate if I don't do this. So I'm going to go ahead. I was trying, like, how can I nonchalantly walk 15 feet away in a boot? Well, uh, you don't, you just own it and you walk away. Um, Joseph, he, he, he's a guy who has things done wrong to him. Uh, he's a guy who his brothers try to kill him. He has every reason in the world to be mad and angry and hate some people and to get revenge. And yet you see and said this man who has this calmness about him, this peace about him, that God's going to work this out. Even when he's in prison, he can say, I don't belong here. This isn't for me. I didn't do 
anything wrong. He can say that and still trust that God's going to work it out. And so we've spent the last six weeks just kind of watching Joseph be a man of God through all of these different seasons. And today we're going to land the plane. What, what I want to ask is, is kind of the question from the beginning of the series is, can you trust God to see his promises through to the end? Is it possible that God really does make beautiful stories from broken beginnings? And, and, just spoiler alert. Yes, is the answer. But let's let's try to let's try to prove it. I'm going to start in chapter 50, verse 15, verse 1 5. Joseph has uh, last week. If you were here, he forgave his brothers. His brothers are like, great man, thank you so much. They go and get dad, who they left in Canaan. So they bring dad there. Dad's really old. He's been about to die for the last 25 years, right? He's he's kind of like that. You know that old sitcom? He's like, ah, that's the next one. He's like, oh, it's always the heart attack. Uh, what was that guy's name? Red, Fred, uh, Fox. I don't know. Um, and so anyway, uh, that's that's been Jacob's life. He's always about to die, but after 17 years of living in Egypt, he does actually die. You can read. He has some closing words in the chapter before where he blesses his sons. He's like, you're really strong. You're going to be fine. God's salvation. I'm waiting for that. Dan, I don't know, dude, you're a snake. Your brothers, just watch out for him. And then like his blessing was really weird at the end of his life, but he's an old dude. And then he dies. And uh, his brothers grieve dad's death, even though they knew it was coming. Joseph being a big, powerful Egyptian does what big, powerful Egyptians do. Let's turn dad into a mummy. And so they embalmed Jacob and they traveled with the embalmed Jacob back to Canaan to bury him in Abraham's tomb. Uh, all the Egyptians went. There's a big funeral procession at the beginning of 50. Just go read that on your own. But now we're back in Egypt. And here's the funny thing about funerals. And most of you, I think, have lived a life long enough to have come on the back end of funerals. It tends to bring out old pains in a family. I don't know if you've noticed that. It tends to bring about old kind of garbage, old stories. And so the brothers, after 17 years of living in Joseph's forgiveness, they have dad's funeral and they're, they're thinking to themselves, oh no, Joseph's going to hate us. Joseph, Joseph's going to get us. Here's, let's, let's read what happens in verse 15. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Notice like they're owning it. It's not, hey, we didn't do it. Remember we didn't do it. They're like, yeah, we did that. Um, it may be that Joseph's about to get us. Like now dad's not here to protect us. Maybe Joseph's going to punish us. Maybe Joseph's going to get his revenge. Who knows? Grief does weird things to weird people. Verse 16, so this is how they're going to solve it. They sent a message to Joseph saying, your father, not our dad, hey, your dad, your father, uh, gave this command before he died. Spoiler alert. Um, the thing that they're about to say pretty much made up. I, there's nowhere in scripture that I've found where Jacob says what they say Jacob said. It's almost as if they're really trying to help themselves by saying, hey, you don't know this, but I found this note. Dad said this before he died. It's kind of one of those moments. They said, dad said this, verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. He gets this note of this made up thing that Jacob never said because the brothers are really scared after 17 years of living in forgiveness that Joseph may change his mind and punish them now. And it says after that, what did Joseph do in response to it? Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He hears the story. It's like, why are you bringing this up? Why are we digging up old stuff in this moment? And he, he just, he just weeps. Funerals have a way of digging up old things. And so Joseph is again grieving something that should have been handled now 17 years ago. 
And so in verse 18, his brothers also come to him and they fall down before him. This is at least the third time that they bow down before Joseph. They say, behold, we are your servants. We're, we're not worthy. It's kind of like Wayne's World. I don't know if you guys watch Wayne's World. We're not worthy. They're just constantly doing that. Um, not realizing that they're fulfilling Joseph's dream that started all of this mess to begin with, but here they are. And what do you do if you're in a moment where the old thing that you thought has already been handled is coming back up. Uh, the people who wronged you and you've already forgiven are digging it back up. Do you dig deep and you're just like, hey, you know what? You're right. I'm ready to get what's coming to me. You know what? I'm really grieving dad right now. And I don't know if you know this, but the family has a habit of when someone dies everything breaks loose. Jacob would break loose whenever his wife died. Uh, when his dad died, everybody just loses their mind around funerals. And so there's a pattern. There's a reason that the brothers are thinking Joseph might lose his mind right now. And what do you do? Here, here's what Joseph did. He weeps. And then he says this to him, verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? He asked this question like, am I God? Am I God? Who am I? to hold against you what God has forgiven. Am I, am I God? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. To make no mistake, what you did was evil. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. If you were here last week, when he sees his brothers for the first time, he speaks roughly to them. That's what they kept talking about. I was like, I don't know what's wrong with this guy. He's speaking so roughly to us. But Joseph, in his forgiveness, can now speak kindness to them. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Am I God? I'm not God. God's working this out. You, you tried to do evil, but God has a way of taking evil and turning it for good. There's something different in Joseph at the end of his life that, that we kind of suspect at the front end of his life, but maybe it's just proven at the end. At the end of his life, Joseph can look back 20, 30, 40 years, and he can draw the line of what God was doing in the pit and in the palace, in the prison, in Pharaoh, Potiphar's wife lying on him, brothers doing this. Like he can, he can see in all the ups and downs, like, oh, that's what God was doing there. That's what God was doing. There's something beautiful. Those of us who follow Jesus and have a history of following Jesus, that when you can look in the rearview mirror and see what he was doing, it bolsters your faith as to what he's about to do and what he can do in the future. Joseph is a guy who was wronged, but he can look back on and say, hey guys, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so I want to kind of, kind of unpack that. There's a guy named Walter Brueggemann, Brueggemann, I think it's German, uh, awesome name, by the way. Here's, here's how he kind of sums this up. He says, the evil plans of human folks do not defeat God's purposes. Instead, they unwittingly become ways in which God's plan is furthered. They unwittingly become ways in which God's plan is further. Joseph is kind of saying the same thing. He's saying, you didn't know what you were doing, but God accomplished what he needed to do in this moment. And so, and so as we land with Joseph, I want to try to ask and answer this question. Like, how has God accomplished his purposes, his plans in your life? Uh, and around you. If we can catch a glimpse of that and how good he is at doing that, it will create moments where we can have faith and our faith is strengthened even when the circumstances don't match up. And so, so God made some promises to Abraham, made some promises to Adam and Eve at the beginning of Genesis that even in the life of Joseph, we see a partial fulfillment. 
But if you were to fast forward just one book, just less than a full chapter forward, Exodus 1 verse 8 says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And then the book of Exodus is how mean Pharaoh was and how God's plans look like they're going to fall apart again. And yet God, again, accomplishes what he wants through Moses. And what we see through the entire Old Testament is that there's these partial fulfillments of what God intends to do, but a, but a, a, um, a protection, a preservation that there will come a Christ. There will be a Messiah that will see this through to completion. And so if, if you'll allow me, I just want to take a little time travel through the next 1500 years or so, okay, of, of the Bible. You get into Exodus. The Pharaoh forgets who Joseph is and all the things that Joseph is good for and all the things that Joseph's God was good for. He begins to hate the people of God and he enslaves them. He, he causes them to, to make bricks and he causes the slavery to be harsh. And so he raises it. God raises up Moses and says, let my people go. And then he has like the staff and like a, you know, a really deep voice because the cartoon says that he did. Actually, scripture says that he has speech impediment. So that would be like, I would like to see that in a cartoon. But anyway, um, he, he, he says, you know, let, let my people go. And, and time and time again, Pharaoh wouldn't. It looks like God's promises won't be fulfilled, but God is a stubborn God, and he sees his promises through to completion. And eventually, Pharaoh lets the people go. Read the book of Exodus. See how that goes. They wander, and they're told, hey, we're going to take you back to the promised land. The land that I promised to Abraham 400 years ago, I'm now going to bring you into it. So they get to the promised land. They look into it, and they're like, there's no way God can do this. These people are huge. They're going to kill us. And so then they wander around the wilderness for four years with Moses just kind of biting his ankles and things. And time and time again, they see God come through with food, come through with water, and still they argue and they bicker. Can God see his promises through to completion? At the end of Moses's life, he's standing on a cliff looking into the promised land. He's not allowed to go in. And he hands the torch off to a man named Joshua. Joshua is a righteous man, but a military man. He's military minded. And so God uses Joshua, marches the Israelites into the promised land, and they begin just conquering some evil countries, evil cities. And as they move into this land, they bring with them this tabernacle because they've learned in this wilderness, in this in-between moment, this is how we worship God. And so they bring this tabernacle into the uh, country with them. And as they conquer the land, Joshua dies. And the scripture says that people began to do what was evil in their own sight. Over and over again, they do what was evil in their own sight. And generation after generation, they would forget God and then God would raise up a judge. And then they would all remember God. Yay, God, he saved us, he rescued us. And then they would do evil in the sight of God, and then they would forget God. And so God raises up a judge, generation after generation, judge after judge. God is constantly making sure his promises come through to completion. At the end of the season of the judges, the people are like, you know what we need? We need a king like everybody else. God says, you really don't, uh, because the king's going to do A, B, and C. They're like, we don't care. We want a king. God says, fine. You can have a king, but I'm going to see my promises through to completion. The first king was terrible. Second king was pretty good. Third king was eh. And then after that, just trash. All the kings after that are just terrible, terrible kings. They break the kingdom in half in just a few generations. Uh, during this time, they build a temple. They're like, let's move the tabernacle. Let's worship God this way. And still, it's like they're just partial fulfillments. Over and over again, God repeats his promises. He says to David, I'm, I'm going to bless you. One's going to come out of you that's going to be the next king. He's going to be king over all of this. And yet... He doesn't see Jesus. The judges don't see Jesus. Moses doesn't see Jesus. Moses has promised a prophet will come after you that is kind of like you but better than you. And then he doesn't see him. These are partial fulfillments. At the end of the kings, 
The people of God are so forgetful of what God has done. They actually lose the whole Bible for an entire generation. Go read about that. Josiah is in the temple. He's like, hey, have you guys seen this book? This is great. This is good stuff. And they open it up. It's like, oh my goodness, we have sinned against that God. And so they're trying to figure out how to get back to him. But then they forget again. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to bring a nation in and they're going to conquer you. They're going to take you into exile. But don't worry. My promises are going to be seen through to completion. Go read Isaiah. And it's like, hey, yeah, Babylon is coming. Uh, Persia is coming. But you know what? God's going to see his promises through to completion. Brings them into exile. Yanks them out of the land. And there's all this turmoil. They get back to the land. They're trying to figure out how to worship. And then scripture has like 400 years of silence. Is God going to see his promise? Did God forget us? Imagine if you're the Jewish people. Yeah, we keep forgetting God, but has he now forgotten us? So you want to see his promises through to completion. And then after 400 years of silence, you get Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and then it's like this light. Jesus now shows up on the scene. John, as he writes his gospel, says that the light came into the world and the world was in darkness and did not know him and would push him away. You have Jesus who shows up and he says, follow me. I will bring you back to God. Jesus says that he is the promise. He is the one who's going to fulfill all of these things. Jesus says that I and the Father are one. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Jesus says that he is the full fulfillment of the promises of God on earth. And people start to have their lives transformed by this truth. There were some who believed that Jesus was who he says that he was, and there were some who didn't. So if Jesus is telling the truth, he is the promise that Joseph was looking forward to. He is the promise that Abraham was looking forward to. And the question is, was he telling the truth, or is this just all a really well-put-together book? See, if you're in here and you're not a follower of Jesus, like the, the conviction is, is like the literary genius that causes all of these stories to overlap over a 2000 year period is remarkable. It is a, an amazing piece of literature. But if it's true, if it's true that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that changes everything. And so how true is it? In Acts chapter six, I want to read a little bit. Uh, if you'll turn there with me. Acts chapter 6, you have uh, the church is just churching for the first time. They're, they're growing for the first time. Uh, you have, you've had a few chapters in Acts, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, of the church growing and people turning. It's like, ah, I think, I think Jesus might be the real deal. They decide in Acts chapter 6 they needed some deacons, and so they, they call some deacons. Uh, Acts chapter 6 verse 5 says, um, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. That is, hey, let's, let's pick some deacons. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And they, a few other deacons, you have Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius. Uh, you, have, you have a bunch of them. And it says in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You have Stephen and a bunch of other deacons, and as they started talking about Jesus, so they started making the claim that all of these promises that were about Moses and David, they're now true in Jesus. People started believing. It says that the church multiplied and some priests became obedient. But there was this one deacon, his name was Stephen. How serious did Stephen take the story of Joseph? Well, it turns out Stephen was really good about talking about Jesus. 
And he's really good about kind of making cases for uh, Jesus being uh, the truth. He says in verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Ignore where they're from. Just know like some people didn't agree with him. Some people are like, you know what? I don't think that Jesus is that promised one of God. And they happen to be religious people making this claim. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. No matter what argument they brought against Stephen, there was something about his words that were true. There was something about him that was wise. There was a spirit about him that was at peace. See, Stephen was so sure that God's promises were ultimately given in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus that he could stand up in front of a group of people that disagreed with him and say, no, you're wrong. And they couldn't withstand him. And so in chapter 7, he's brought into trial. Some lies are made up about him. Joseph had some lies made up about him. Maybe you've had some lies made up about you from time to time. People say things about you that aren't true and it's unfair and they're treating you unkindly. And so Stephen, he is given the chance to give this speech. Uh, I'm going to read it quickly, uh, but hear how it goes. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said in response, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. The first thing out of his mouth is like, hey, let's, let's rewind all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised, there's that word, but promised to give him as a possession and to his offering after him, though he had no child. He's like, listen, God promised Abraham this land and then didn't even let him live in it. Said, hey, your offspring's going to have it, but he didn't even have any kids. He made this promise to Abraham and, and he, Abraham just believed him without, without any evidence that it could come to be. And, and then it did. Verse six. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. He said, hey, remember, God, promised Abraham that we're going to go into slavery in Egypt, and that doesn't happen for another three generations after Abraham. He's not even alive to see it. Verse 7, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. As Stephen is giving the speech, he ends up in the same portion of Genesis that we are just finishing. He ends up talking about Joseph and how, how the brothers treated him. Verse 9 says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. He's like, it was bad. It was bad for everybody. They couldn't find anything. The, the, the brothers were treating Joseph poorly over here, but it all worked out because God's promises. Verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons, and all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died 
And he and our fathers, uh, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. It's like they had the funeral for Jacob, just like Genesis said. But, verse 17, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he continues, if you have your Bible, like just, I'm not going to read all of it, but the, the speech is the whole chapter. He just continues play by play through the Old Testament. God made a promise and he saw it through the generation of Abraham. And then he saw it through the generation of Isaac. And then he saw it through the generation of Joseph. And he saw it through the generation of Moses. He went play by play, just like I did a moment ago, saying, this is how God does those things. And in every season, there were some who believed God would and some who opposed God because they just wouldn't believe. Then he gets to the end of his speech. And he looks at the people who he's like in court. Like, he, okay, uh, you are possibly going to be sentenced to death. Give us your defense. He gives that entire speech. And then he says to them, this is not, by the way, how you want to address your, if you find yourself in the same situation. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. He looks at them and he says, you're behaving exactly like the wrong side of the story in every story of the Old Testament. We should be expecting Jesus to be the fulfilled promise of God. Let me pause before I get back to what happens to Stephen and just say this. Um, as you look around you, the world around you, you should be trying to make sense of all the things. And the only way I've been able to make sense of the things that I've seen in my life is that Jesus, through the lens of Jesus, it makes all of the other things make sense. And outside of that, pushing against that, it's just really chaotic, and it looks like God doesn't know what he's doing. But, but Scripture says that before the foundations of the earth, Christ died on the cross for us. It's like he knows what he's doing. And Stephen with his life literally hanging in the balance, is so sure of God's promises that he doesn't pull any punches and he just tells them exactly what's going on. Here's how it ends with Stephen, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. How enraged were they? And they ground their teeth at him. Oh man, Uh, every dentist in here starts cringing all of a sudden. They're just so angry, they grind their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit, punched them right in the nose. No, that, that's, how I, that's how sometimes I want to act. Uh, no, he, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He, he catches a glimpse of what God's doing because he has such a strong faith in the promises of God. Are your, is your faith in the promises of God so sure that you can actually c- catch a glimpse of how he's working things out moving forward as well. See, Joseph, he could look in the rearview mirror and see how God was working it out. Stephen is like, I can now look forward and see how he's working it out. Verse 57, some people just don't listen. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. It's like, this is over. We're not going to hear you. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, which is now a major character in Acts. We're meeting him for the first time. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out. What would you call out in this moment? Hey, stop. I didn't do it. Hey, leave me alone. He calls out 
And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This brother is so sure of God's promises that he's getting hit in the head with a rock. He's like, oh, please forgive them. And then he's like, hey, Lord, take, take my spirit. And then the most anticlimactic way to end an execution, the dude just takes a nap. He just like, and he just lays down. I'm sure they're like, what do I do with these rocks? It's over. It's like, I don't know. It's over. Uh, Stephen, it's like just this one chapter. He's like full of the Holy Spirit. We select you. He preaches Jesus, and the, he's so sure of God's promises. He doesn't try to undo his circumstances. He doesn't try to get out of things. He just, this is the season that I'm in. I'm entrusted with this moment right now, and all I can do is testify about Jesus. At the end of Joseph's life, he asked his brothers this question, am I in the place of God? Let me ask you the question that Joseph asked them. Are you putting yourself in the place of God? Now, before we're too quick to answer, what would that look like? Well, being in the place of God is when we're really, really anxious about tomorrow. We're really wanting to get to the next thing. Putting ourselves in the place of God is refusing to forgive someone when we know we're supposed to because, you know what, they owe me. Well, why am I in the place of God? Are you in the place of God when, when we're restless and we're trying to move to the next season? Listen, if you're young, if you're like 25 or under in here, listen to this. Um, when we are trying to rush to that next chapter, not honoring the chapter that we're in right now, we put ourselves in the place of God as if we know how to get our story moved along better than he does. This season we're in now, whatever season you find yourself in, can be a holy and ordained season if we trust the promises of God. Joseph, you know what he learned in prison and in the pit? He's like, I'm not God. I'm going to be what I can be in prison. I'm going to be what I can be in the palace. I'm going to be what I can be in the pit. I'm going to be what I can be in Potiphar's house. I am not God. And because of that, he gets this like image of character that we should want to resemble. Uh, someone you may recognize, uh, C.S. Lewis, he wrote uh, Chronicles of Narnia, which, side note, about to come out on Netflix. They just like started writing it, so I'm kind of excited about that, if I had to be honest with you. Uh, he, he was a, a former atheist turned Christian, extremely smart guy, far smarter than me. Um, he's asked in a university setting, like, hey, you used to be an atheist and now you're a Christian. You used to be all about science and now you're about faith. Like, how do you, how do you take science and the things that you see in this world and your circumstances and then like your theology and that God's working this out? And how do you make those make sense? You should Google that paper and read it. It's short, but it's super smart like C.S. Lewis says, but the last line of the paper says this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe in Christianity as I see the sun has risen, not only because I can see the sun, but because of the sun I can see everything else. What, what C.S. Lewis has come to know and what Stephen learned and what Joseph learned is that when we understand God's ways and God's promises and we can see the world through the lens of Christ, it makes suffering make sense. It makes joy make sense. It makes season of wandering for 40 years in the wilderness make sense. It makes season of everybody around us turning from God and yet I stand strong make sense. Outside of the lens of Christianity, it is just chaos out there. But because of Christ, it can make sense. Am I in the place of God? When we know our place and we look at our life through that lens, it makes sense. We've had this phrase 
that we've been using since the beginning of this series. From broken beginnings, God writes beautiful stories. That's the case for Joseph. It's the case for Moses. It's the short little story of Stephen that is so full of heartbreak, and yet it's beautiful, and that he was so sure of his faith and so much at peace. From broken beginnings, God writes beautiful stories. I want to highlight at the end of our series one, for one piece of that phrase. God writes the beautiful stories. And I think too often Christians are like, I've got these broken pieces and it's up to me to make something beautiful out of it. And yet the overwhelming uh, testimony of Scripture is like, no, we'll just sacrifice those to him. Take your broken pieces, as, as Jim was preaching a few weeks ago when I was out, that, that we were called to be living sacrifices. What would it look like? If we take all of the broken junk, all of the pieces of our story that don't make sense, all of the chaos, and we just laid them down and say, here you go, do what you want. We might have a short chapter like Stephen, we might have a full life like Joseph, but it's going to be beautiful because that's how God does his things. God writes this story. So I'm going to close uh, reading Philippians, not the whole book. Paul, as he's in prison, he's kind of come to the same conclusion that we're coming out with as we finish with Joseph. And here's, here's how he kind of lands his logic. Um, he's been thinking like, how many things do I have going for me? And you know, I'm really good at these things. I'm the smartest guy I know, but none of it's worth anything. He says this in verse seven, uh, chapter three, verse seven. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." God never promised you that you wouldn't suffer. And the pastor who told you that is a liar and should be judged for that, frankly. Um, the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that God's promises are seen through the peaks and the valleys. He never misses a beat. And the people who have the most peace about that are the ones who just learn to abandon it all to him. From broken beginnings, God writes beautiful stories. Let's give him the story then. Let's trust him. And the only, the only right way to do that is to submit to the Lord Jesus, is to trust that he will work this out, is to confess him as Lord and say, it's, I'm done. I'm going to give you my life. Let me pray for us, uh, then we'll watch the cue together. Father, uh, this, this morning, as, as, we, as we lay in the story with Joseph and all the, all the ups and downs, uh, Lord, we, we come to you uh, knowing that our lives have ups and downs and, and just pray, God, that you would... Um, that you help us make sense of it. Help us to submit to your ways and to see the thread of what you're doing, even in our lives, in the chapter of our lives, to, to, make, to make beautiful things, to make a story that we would never have seen come to be. I pray, Lord, for the men and women in this room that um, it's just hard to do. It's hard to follow you. Um, I pray, Lord, that you give them strength right now, that you would rejuvenate in them a, a sight of what you can do uh, with a life submitted to you. Pray, Father, that you would rekindle hearts that have wandered um, to, to fall back in love with you and to, to see your purposes through to completion. I pray, Father, for those of us who are just, we're, we're running out of hope, um, that you would remind us of your promises, 
um, that you would remind us that you are a God that we can stand firm and that we would run to that refuge. And like Joseph, um, the end of our life would be a life of, of peace, not because the circumstances didn't happen, but because you matter so much more than the circumstances do. So, Lord, I, I pray in the name of Jesus a blessing over these men and women, that through turning to you and in trusting in you, that their life is peaceful. Um, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.